Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Institute for Government. Welcome to everyone who's joining us here in person and all those who are online. My name's Hannah White, and I'm director of the IFG, and I'm delighted to welcome you all here for this event on what the autumn statement means for UK fiscal policy. I'm delighted to be joined by an excellent panel uh, to discuss that very important question and uh, to be spoiling you today with two of my IFG colleagues. Uh, we normally only manage to squeeze one onto a panel, but we're very lucky today to have Stuart Hodnot, who is a senior researcher here at the Institute for Government on our public services team, Anoush Shakelian, who is Britain editor of the New Statesman, Richard Hughes, who is chair of the uh, Office of Budget Responsibility, and Tom Pope, who is our deputy chief economist here at the IFG. Um, and so we have, an, I think, an hour and a quarter uh, today for our event. Uh, I'm going to kick off with some uh, event for some questions to the panel uh, from the chair. Then we're going to go to questions from the audience. If you are joining us online, please do send in your questions via Slido, and they will appear magically on my iPad. We will be live tweeting this event from IFG events using the hashtag IFG Autumn Statement or Xing or whatever it is we do these days. Um, and so please do start sending in your questions. So I'm going to kick straight off with you, Richard. Um, what happened to the um, what has happened to the economic and fiscal outlook for the last uh, for the next few years? And how has government policy shaped and reacted to that, would you say? Uh, sure, and thank you very much for the invitation to, to, to be here. Um, I think this autumn statement was more of a challenge, I think, to explain uh, uh, from an economic and fiscal point of view than some of the other ones. And I think one of the reasons why is that uh, what shapes all of our lives over the last 18 months has been very high inflation by, by historic standards and, and something which not a lot of people have had a lot of familiarity with. Um, and, I, and the challenge um, in dealing with, with high inflation is that uh, it sort of introduces lots of puzzles and paradoxes into uh, the public finances. And those are reflected in the headlines that you've seen over the last 24 hours, which is, you know, this is both a tax cutting autumn statement, but the tax burden is going up. Um, it's a budget for growth, but the growth uh, forecasts are revised down. Um, you know, the economy isn't doing as well as we thought back in March, but somehow the Chancellor has more money to spend. Um, and so I think to understand quite why that's happened, you do have to think about two key issues. One is what, you know, what kind of inflation are you having? Where is it coming from? And then secondly, in terms of its interaction with the public finances, what is indexed to inflation and what is frozen? Um, in cash terms, because that really, so how inflation affects the public finances depends a lot on where the inflation is coming from and how different parts of the public finances react. Um, the biggest change between our March forecasts and this forecast was really that we are expecting higher and more persistent inflation over the medium term than we were back in March. Now, inflation is coming down, but we expect it to last, to last, to stay higher for longer um, than we were back in March. So there's more inflation going around over the next five years than we, than we thought. Um, and the composition of that inflation is different. The sort of inflation that we saw last year was what in economic terms you call a pure terms of trade shock. It was just high energy prices. We mostly import energy in this country. We consume a lot of gas. It pushes up the price of everything. Um, but at the time, it wasn't pushing up wages. And if you asked employers what were your plans for wage growth, it was well below the rate of inflation. Um, what we've seen more recently is energy prices starting to come down. 
Um, we found alternative sources of gas from the US, from, from Qatar, to replace what we used to get uh, in Europe from Russia. So gas prices have started coming down. So the imported element of inflation has gone down. But more inflation is being driven domestically. So it's coming from domestic sources. Um, and in particular, um, it's coming from higher wage pressures pushing up on the price level. So we're generating more inflation in, internally. Um, Compared to our March forecast, that's better news for living standards in the sense that you know, prices are going up, but people's wages are doing a better job of keeping pace with those prices. They're still falling behind. Living standards have still been falling, um, but they're not falling by as much as we thought. Um, but it is also uh, good news for the public finances because of the things that are frozen and indexed in the public finances. One of the most important things that are frozen in the public finances over the next five years are tax thresholds and allowances. And that creates for the chancellor a big fiscal windfall because if people's wages are growing faster than you expect, you get more basic rate, additional rate and higher rate taxpayers than you thought. And that's generated a fiscal windfall for the chance of about 60 billion pounds compared to our March forecast from just dragging more people into higher rates of tax before you make any other tax changes. So he started out 60 billion pounds on the plus side from the fact that you had higher inflation pushing up wages, pushing more people into higher tax bans, generating lots of cash. Um, the other bits of the public finances which are indexed in some form are welfare benefits, which he kept to the indexation rules. And so he lost about £20 billion of that £60 billion from higher welfare payments, um, including triple lock and on universal credit. The other thing which is sort of effectively indexed are our, is debt interest, because you pay the interest rate that the market charges. Um, and interest rates also went up since March. Um, that took away another £15 billion from the sort of starting £60 billion that he had from people being dragged into higher tax bans. That still left him with about 25, 27 billion pounds to spend um, compared to you know, where he thought he was in March and where we thought we were in March. Um, and he basically spent all of it. Um, and what he did is he gave it back to taxpayers in the form of a big tax cut uh, to national insurance, 2p off um, the starting rate, um, and also back to businesses in the form of full expensing uh, for capital investment. So um, he got a sort of cash windfall from higher higher uh, fiscal drag, he spent it on tax cuts. The one thing that he didn't do was change his public spending plans. And what that means in effect, which are, which are frozen in cash, which are you know, basically unchanged in cash terms. And so what that means in effect is he has allowed the, the value of public spending over the next five years to be eroded by about 20 billion pounds, by about the amount that he gave out in tax cuts uh, back to taxpayers. Had he tried to protect the value of public service spending in real terms to reflect the higher inflation, that would have cost him the £20 billion you know, that he decided to give away in tax cuts. So there was a pretty pure political choice of getting a cash windfall from fiscal drag and deciding to give it back to taxpayers rather than try and preserve the real spending power of government departments. And that's why the bottom line of our forecast looks very much like the bottom line from back in March, which is mm. he got a bunch of extra cash from fiscal drag. He spent it giving it back to taxpayers, but in the process has eroded the real value of public spending plans by an equivalent amount of about 20 billion. And in so doing has made the political calculation, I guess, that people are going to notice and give credit to the government for a tax cut more than they would for that extra investment in public services. That's right. And, and in particular, in the sense that you're going to get this benefit in, in January. Um, so you feel that immediately. Um, you know, these public spending plans are set over the next five years. Actually, plans are more or less fixed up until the March of 2025. Beyond that, there's basically a set of question marks. So um, those cuts are to come. Um, and uh, you know, there is not a lot of detail about where they might come from. And I'm sure we'll get into that later on. And as not being an economist, I'm just interested. So you, you distinguish at the start of your answer between externally driven inflation and domestically. Is domestically driven inflation likely to be stickier 
than international, um, well, externally? It, it, it can be. I think it's certainly, it depends more on what you do domestically to try and bring it, bring, bring it under control. And obviously that is, that is the task uh, that, that is, that is uh, on, the, on the plate of the Bank of England. I mean, in, 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 imported inflation can also be stickier if you can't find alternative sources of gas. Um, we're fortunate in that because of liquefied natural gas now, you don't need a pipeline to a country to bring in gas. You can get it from the Americans, you can get it from Qatar, but we do bring it a lot from the Middle East, and there are lots of reasons why it might be harder to get things out of the Middle East in the coming months. Thank you. Um, Tom, what stood out for you from the autumn statement? I think the first thing is Rich has already reflected on, on those economic forecasts that became even more pessimistic than they were before. And, you know, if you sort of step back and look at where we're likely to go over the next few years. They do make for pretty grim reading. Growth next year now expected to be less than 1% when it was previously expected to be 1.5%. Um, trend growth, that sort of underlying growth in the productive potential of the economy downgraded as well, which stores, if, if it's correct, stores up even more problems for, for the medium term. So if you just look at that economic side, what that means for living standards, really that's a pretty gloomy picture that, that Richard presented yesterday, albeit it could be even worse. The OBR remains quite a bit more optimistic than the Bank of England, most, most apparently, but even some other forecasters. You know, the, the OBR is, is certainly in, in the central range, but slightly, slightly above the, the centre on, on that. Grim forecasts for everyone, that is, except for the Chancellor, who, as Richard's managed to explain very well, somehow got a fiscal windfall despite worsening um, economic circumstances. Um, I do think, you know, as Richard set out, the Chancellor spent all of his fiscal windfall that he got this year. And that, that really is not a sensible or responsible way to be making fiscal policy. Um, economic forecasts always, but particularly at the moment, are so uncertain that they're moving around a lot from, from statement to statement, from November to March, from March to November. And if you look at what the Chancellor did, for example, last November, when the forecast got worse, he accepted borrowing more yet this time the forecast got better and he decided to spend all of that windfall. And that's a, a surefire way to end up with debt rising over time if you always spend your good news and swallow your bad news. That's made even worse by uh, you know, the particular uncertainty that, that we have at the moment that you know, we're going to have another forecast in four months' time in March that could easily go back the other way. Mm -hmm. And you know, £13 billion of headroom, which is what the Chancellor has against his fiscal rule, um, is really not very much. Um, the other thing that really struck out to me, sort of as a result of a combination of the choices the Chancellor made, is that what these forecasts are doing is storing up huge problems for whoever inherits this fiscal situation beyond the next election, whoever wins it. Um, the, you know, the tax cuts were only affordable because of further squeezes on, on public spending, uh, spending plans that we already have said were implausible beforehand, and Stuart, no doubt, will we'll talk more about that. And in that sense, you know, both parties are likely to want to commit to debt being on course to fall as a share of GDP in the fifth year of the forecast, which is the current fiscal rule, um, already a pretty loose fiscal rule, by the way. Um, and that means you know, these spending plans are almost a bind that are going to be quite difficult to, to get out of. But if you look seriously at the challenges facing public services, there's no real way to think that, that those are deliverable plans. And that ultimately means there's a lot of illusion going on in, in these plans. And I don't think we should really be confident, although Richard's numbers yesterday show that debt's on course to fall in five years' time as a share of GDP, um, I don't think really a central um, expectation should be that they are. 
And I think my, my final takeaway would be, should we even have had an autumn statement at all? And it is a, it's a, a well-worn IFG path to, to make a plea for, for one fiscal event a year. But I, I do think yesterday demonstrated quite well why, that, you know, why that's so important. All of the measures, um, with the exception of the fact that the national insurance measure is coming in, in in January rather than April, all of this could have waited until March when we'd have had that bit more certainty about what the fiscal situation looked like. And you know, when, when forecasts are moving around, the more often a chancellor has a, an opportunity to respond, the more likely it is you get this situation where he gets a bit of good news that he spends that might then get reversed later. Um, there was a, a whole series of measures, m many of them commendable on tax, but continuing a sort of trend of, um, of, of churn and tinkering with the tax system that is so damaging to, to certainty. And I think ultimately, I look at everything that was announced yesterday and think, there are a bunch of things that you could have said in March last year, a bunch of things you could have said next March, but it would have been probably much better if the Chancellor had stood up and said very little yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tom. So, it would have been better if he hadn't said it. And, uh, and the other quote I took from, from what Tom was saying is, a lot of illusion. Um, Anoush, what do you think the public will make of uh, what was said yesterday? Well, yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot, and actually I had a little personal panel of the public and people who are sort of at the sharp end of the cost of living crisis in all sorts of different situations. I, I asked them to watch the autumn statement and then give their responses to me when I was covering it afterwards. And um, really the response was, these tax cuts aren't going to make a huge amount of difference, nor is a rise in the minimum wage. What they're really worried about is the, is the fact that for them, prices are still going up and that they're in a really difficult situation. So a lot of the responses that I got were that, you know, actually what would help me more in looking for a job or sticking in my job or working longer hours would be if I could afford to heat my home, if my fuel was, you know, <laughs> cheaper and I could get around easier and that I could afford the essentials and didn't have to have this worry, you know, on my shoulders all the time. So I think the cost of living is still at the forefront of voters' minds. Tax cuts are always going to be popular, and I think there's been some polling that shows that um, you know people do welcome that 2p uh, cut in national insurance. Um, but it did feel a little bit like the Chancellor was sort of speaking in a parallel universe to where the country is at at the moment. So he, I think he used this phrase about the, you know things are turning a corner. I think that's quite a risky line. Um, I don't think that chimes with the majority of the public. Um, I know it's a it's a very trivial point to make, but and I know most normal people don't watch the autumn state, but, but Rishi Sunak was grinning all the way through. And I think perhaps, you know, the, slightly jars with what the reality is for, for people. And apparently his, his, his Cheshire crack, cat grin does come up negatively in focus groups now. So perhaps they should be slightly more careful about how they're suggesting that we're in, you know, we're in some kind of bonanza era rather than the reality for what it's like for the public on the ground. Um, this isn't the same as those coalition years post-crash where the message was, you know, we know times are difficult, but we're all in it together and we're, you know, we're fixing things, so just stick with us. They might try that kind of um, rhetoric again. I don't think it will work this time round. I think there's an appetite for change um, and also an awareness that it has been the Conservative Party that has made a lot of the mistakes on our economy in recent years. They can't really use the line that sort of Labour crashed the economy with very much um, integrity anymore. So I think, I think the country's in a different place. It expects more from its government as well in terms of public spending and helping them through crises because of the realities that we've been through recently. That erosion of public spending um, that Richard was talking about, I think, will 
be um, probably one of the most important things that you know matters to people. When I go around the country, which I do a lot to report on elections, but also various public services and how things are going in different communities, people don't mention the rate of tax. They might mention council tax because they're not they don't feel their council's giving them much back. Um, they do mention the state of public services, uh, the NHS in particular, and you know whether or not it's realistic that you're going to be able to cut them by another nine bi 19 billion is, 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 is another question. But if people you know, get the message that they're not being funded properly, then that will be very unpopular. Thanks. Stuart, just to go back to one of the uh, apparent sort of contradictions that Richard highlighted in the coverage of, of yesterday's autumn statement, Hunt was arguing this was a sort of autumn statement for growth, but at the same time, he was penciling in further cuts to public sector capital spending. What are the risks there that he's running? The risks are quite large. Um, just to put this in context a little bit, governments have consistently underinvested in capital, and I'm talking about over decades, not just in the last few years. But even by those low standards, the 2010s were particularly bad. There was real underinvestment over the last 13 or so years in public sector capital. That is in things like buildings, not only in building new buildings, but also maintaining existing buildings. Also in equipment, things like CT scanners, um, PCs for, for staff to work on, and also in IT as well. So things like IT systems communicating between different parts of public services. The result of that underinvestment, particularly over the last decade, is a real drop in productivity. Our performance tracker, which we published in partnership with SIPFA, shows that lack of capital investment has been one of the driving factors behind lower productivity in public services. There has been a slight improvement in recent years, but the announcement yesterday that the capital budget will be held flat in cash terms, which means a decline in real terms, means that we're not going to be able to start to address those productivity issues in any meaningful sense. And that will mean, again, the money that we're putting in will go less far than it has done in the past and also directly contradicts another of the, the Chancellor's key points, which was on uh, public service productivity. There's a real tension there between sort of driving for more productivity, but also underinvesting in the elements of public services that really help deliver productivity improvements. And he did extend this policy of full expensing um, for private sector capital spending, and, and we think that's, that's likely to be positive. That's something that the private sector was looking for. Yeah. That's actually something I don't know much about. <laughs> I'm going to be hand back to Tom on, on full expense. There was a really interesting sort of clash in the rhetoric in a way that he, he was making this explicit point that we're announcing permanent full expensing for business investment, which we think is a good idea. So that, this was a policy that he'd announced as a temporary move back in March, um, allowing businesses to basically, if you spend a pound on, on machinery or, or computers, you can deduct all of it this year rather than the old system, which was that you deduct it steadily over several years. But he'd initially announced it only as a temporary measure, which meant that the OBR and, and, and others expected it to bring forward some investment that would otherwise have happened later, but not ultimately lead to a permanent increase in business investment. And the Chancellor said, we're doing this because businesses are going to invest more and that's going to boost productivity. At the same time, he's saying he wants to boost public sector productivity with quite um, dramatically falling capital spending in real terms, and now that inflation's higher, holding uh, capital spending flat fixed in cash terms is an even bigger cut in, yeah. in real terms, but no adjustment was made for that. So another contradiction. <laughs> Richard, you 
factored into your forecast a positive boost to uh, growth and employment from some of the measures that the, the government put forward um, like that. That's obviously something the Chancellor was keen um, to see and talked about a lot in his speech. How do you, as an independent forecaster, avoid getting, into draw, getting drawn into the sort of politics of that, that, those sorts of um, measures and how they're... Um, uh, so, rejected. Uh, so mainly by only costing what we're asked to cost, we don't propose policies to government or to the Chancellor. So uh, when he gives us things, uh, you know, we, we cost both their fiscal cost and then where we think they have a chance of having a significant and durable impact on the economy in the long run, we also take account of their long run economic effects. So their effect on what you would call the supply side of the economy, the kind of drivers of growth. And in this autumn statement, uh, both the full expensing measure um, we think by basically lowering the long-run cost of capital, um, it will boost investment by about £14 billion over the five years of our forecast. That's about £3 billion a year, uh, about, one, about a bit more than 1% uh, of, in terms of the flow of investment. And over time, that builds up into a bigger capital stock and supports a bit more growth. Um, and also, both from the measures he announced on welfare reform, um, designed to get people off uh, sickness-related benefits and into the workforce, as well as just the next measure by increasing the returns to working longer hours, we assume that you also get a, a, a modest labor supply effect of around 100,000 um, extra uh, sort of hours, you know, a full-time equivalent's work to the economy, about 50,000 more employment, and then the rest from the fact that lower next means we might consider working a bit longer because um, we get uh, more, of a, more of a post-tax benefit. Again, that's a that's a sort of modest amount of, uh, amount of boost to the potential of the economy because the workforce is 34 million people. So an extra, an extra 100,000 FTs is you know, not, nothing to sniff at, but um, it's not, uh, it doesn't really move the dial on the rate of growth, um, but it does help, uh, does help the level of output by the end of our forecast. And taken together, um, the full expensing measure plus the boost that you get to the labor force adds about 0.3 to the level of output by the end of our forecast. So not nothing. Um, and worth having, but uh, it's not a, you know, not a growth transformation. And did you adjust growth downwards, just coming back to Tom's point, to reflect the, the lower planned public sector investment? Uh, we do in the long run. Um, so in our long run forecast, we would. I think the thing to bear in mind about public investment is um, a lot of public investment has very long lead times. So uh, you know, if you think about how long it is taking to build HS2, um, or, or how long it took to build Crossrail. Um, you know, the growth impact you get from those kind of investments can be decades away. And so we do take account in our long-run projections of, of what the steady state level of public investment is. Within a five-year period, to be honest, you know, if the government spends a bit more in, in public investment, you have a bigger stimulus to the demand side of the economy than you do to the supply side of the economy because you just got more construction activity. Mm -hmm. You don't get the growth benefit of that construction until the project's finished and actually supporting more people moving around the country, mm -hmm. you know, more people getting, more, more students getting you know, taught in schools, those sorts of things. Okay. Tom, Hunt was trying to sort of, uh, I think, paint a picture about the UK economy having turned a corner. Do you think that's uh, likely to be something which is reflected in how the public feel so uh, he was sort of building that wasn't he on his the fact that he's he's reached his his inflation target which is not the bank of england's inflation target and that inflation has now fallen um, but i think if you, you look at the the forecast and what's likely to happen over the next couple of years this is not a sort of 2014 2015 period when actually growth, growth did start to increase quite quickly 
what's anticipated is pretty sluggish growth in both incomes and the economy overall in the next few years. And, and I think on the back of the fact that we've had really big falls in living standards the last couple of years, and I think, you know, people's reference point probably is not just this year to next year. It's w where they were a couple of years ago, and it's going to take quite a while for for that to sort of have fully recovered. And it's going to be, I think, between 2019-20 and 2024-25 is meant to be the, the worst five-year period ever for, for living standards. So in, in that sense, you're unlikely to see, see the, the corner turns, I'd have thought, and, and in many ways less so now than, than in the March forecast when there was expected to be worse growth this year but a bigger rebound next year. We're no longer expecting to see that 2024 rebound. Okay. So, I mean, I'm just thinking how, what that then means uh, for the election mm. year, I guess, um, you know, pros and cons for the, for the Chancellor and comparing where he was in March versus where he is now. Yeah, and I think, you know, people obviously look, looked at yesterday's statement and tried to say, well, what, what does this mean about the timing of an election? I, mean, I think what, one thing looking at the forecast is that the economic situation probably isn't going to look great in May. It's probably not going to look great in November or January either. You know, it doesn't, it's not like there's a sort of real predicted uptick, you know, we'll sort of bottom out in May and things will be rosy by, by November, but equally it's not, it's not the case the other way around. And this is where I think 2015 is quite instructive, where actually if you look back at those forecasts, there were, you know, some really tough years before that, but there was a period of recovery then that meant at the time of the election people were starting to see their incomes in real terms increase. I think that's less likely to be the case next year, at least if Richard's forecasts are right. I think we need the ABR to uh, calculate what the productivity would gain would be if people stopped speculating about the <laughs> all, all that time we could spend on other things. Um, uh, Stuart, can I come back to you? Um, what, you talked about um, public sector capital investment, but what, what did the autumn statement do for the outlook for public services? So I think that the, the short answer there is not a lot, really. The slightly longer answer is, coming back to what Richard was saying earlier on, is those budgets which have been held uh, flat in cash terms up until March 2025 are now less generous than they were when they were first made. That's due to higher inflation, uh, as we've talked about, also higher than expected wage deals in, in, in public services following strike action. Um, that has been a story that's been consistent ever since the 2021 spending review two years ago, that at the time looked relatively generous compared to previous spending reviews. It was large real terms increase in spending throughout the next three years. But that's been gradually eroded over time by higher inflation and again, those, those, those pay deals coming in. In terms of what it means for performance, um, our performance tracker shows that uh, no services are performing better now than they were on the eve of the pandemic and no services performed better than they were in 2010. So service performance is really, really struggling now. Um, without an uplift in spending in real terms between now and the, end, and the end of the spending review period, it's very difficult to see how performance will improve uh, for, for in public services. I think that holds real risks for Rishi Sunak. I think as Anoush mentioned, people are very aware that things like your elective waiting list are the highest it's ever been that it's very difficult to get a GP appointment. Um, the court backlog is incredibly high and also more complex than it was before the pandemic. There's high amounts of unmet and undermet need in social care due to lack of supply. Um, attainment in schools is worse now in some areas than it was before the pandemic. And local government finance is also incredibly precarious. I think it was called out as a risk to the public finances in the OBR's EFO yesterday as well. So all those things are really 
quite poor and quite visible to a lot of people in the in the public. And I think that that's a real sort of a real risk the government going into the next election. And the assumptions that the Chancellor's made about public sector spending beyond the next election, I think we may have called them implausible. Yes, I think to use uh, my boss, I'm going to use Nick's word because, words because it takes the blame off me. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he said that the Chancellor is abdicating responsibility for public services beyond the next, um, beyond the end of this, this spending review period. So yeah, Hunt yesterday confirmed that um, Ardell day-to-day spending will increase by just under 1% per year in real terms for three years after March 2025. Um, that is incredibly damaging to public service performance. It will likely mean further deteriorations in service performance um, beyond that period. It's also particularly bad when you start to dig into what has been committed already. So the government's made commitments around the NHS for the NHS long-term workforce plan. The IFS estimates that will cost about 3.6% per year real terms increases for the NHS. It's also made commitments on defence spending to rise in line with GDP and for foreign aid also to rise in line with GDP. So taking all those out, you then have real-term declines declines in spending for other public services. That's things like uh, the criminal justice sector, courts, courts, schools, local government, social care. Those are already performing very badly. If those settlements are kept to, and both parties are committed to those settlements, it likely implies much worse performance in those services particularly relative to the government's own forecast for demand in the criminal justice system. So I think that we would say that they are implausible. And experience shows that when performance declines to politically unacceptable levels, the government ends up topping up budgets at short notice with emergency funding pots to try and, you know, in a, in a, in a hurry to make performance better. It happened last winter um, when there was a crisis in hospitals the government poured money into adult social care and the NHS. That money is really badly spent. In adult social care, they spent it on things like one-off retention bonuses and paying agency staff. Those are really, really poor value for money interventions that the service has to make to try and increase capacity at short notice. And the government just finds that there's very poor value for money from making, from continuing to top up those spending plans. So we would argue that being more realistic now and making more money available before you have to top it up at the last minute would be a more effective way of creating spending plans. Absolutely. Richard, what difficulties does it present for you in producing a credible central forecast when the government is penciling in these sorts of implausible spending assumptions? I mean, the the difficulty we have is that the government has very detailed spending plans out to March of 2025, um, and so you can assess the credibility of those because you know how much they're spending on health, how much they're spending on education, how much they're spending mm-hmm. on transport. You can look at trends in waiting lists. Uh, you can look at pass- you know, passenger numbers on, on the railways and on the underground and assess um, you know, how, whether those budgets are adequate. After March 2025, it's just a total mystery. Um, and we, you know, we, published, we published a table in our, in our document which shows the government spending plans over the, f- over the five years of our forecast. And you've got two numbers where you've got an incredible amount of detail. And then you've got basically four years where you've just got you know, one number. Um, and that is for total spending on, on current and total spending on capital. And it's not as though the government doesn't you know, have priorities and ambitions in those years. I mean, as, as you say, there are commitments on the NHS workforce plan. There's, commission, there's uh, commitments on defense spending. Um, and so the government is making promises to spend certain amounts of money on certain things. What you don't know is the consequences for all other departments. And we are, we are unusual as a country in that we set out medium-term plans for tax in very great detail, 
Um, but we, we set out very little um, in terms of plans for public spending. In other countries, you do know what they're going to be spending on the health service for the next five years, what they're going to be spending on education for the next five years. And those departments can actually plan on that basis. Uh, we have this kind of problem that because when the government does spending views is dictated by the political timetable, not by the requirements of people trying to manage the services, you have this kind of planning blight where at some point you come to the end of a spending view period and there's just a mystery after that. Um, and it means it's harder to plan big infrastructure projects, harder to plan public services, which you know are going to need to be around in five years' time um, without that kind of certainty. And it makes it harder to forecast how much they're going to spend because you don't know what they're going to spend on. So we've now got contradictions, illusions, and mysteries. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so would the APR be able to do a better job if we changed the way we approach that and were more in line with, with what other countries do in terms of pushing ahead? It would, certainly be, we'd, it would be more transparent what, the, what choices the government is making to deliver these spending plans. Because um, you know, it is the case that we have, much, we have cut spending in real terms and as a share of GDP in this country before. George Osborne did it in 2010. And you understood how he did it because he set out a spending review and said, this is where spending is falling. We're going to cut spending on working age benefits. You know, we're going to protect these departments. These other departments are going to see real cuts. Um, this government hasn't done that because it doesn't want to. Um, it could do it any time <laughs> if it wanted to. It's just chosen not to do it because it's not at a convenient time. It might not look very pretty. Um... Anoush, there's been a lot of discussion about whether this approach is designed to set a sort of trap uh, for Labour um, and sort of anticipating, given the polls, that we may be going to have a Labour government after the next election, that this is just going to put the Labour, that Labour government in a, in a very difficult position. Do you think that's, this is a successful strategy? Well, I mean, I, I'm a little bit sceptical about this idea that this autumn statement sets a trap for Labour because I think they face exactly the same dilemma as they did on Tuesday, which is they're going to have to raise taxes uh, or raise borrowing in order to fund their public services properly because, um, as Stuart very well laid out, you know, a lot of them are on the verge of falling over and, you know, a Labour government doesn't want to be a one-term government, so they're going to have to put some more money into those services. So I think it's the same dilemma that they, that they faced before Jeremy Hunt stood up yesterday. But that doesn't mean that it's not a dilemma. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, they are ex effectively accepting most of the plans that we've heard from, from the Conservatives. OK, they've got a few tweaks of how they want to fund certain things with the um, scrapping the non-dom tax status, taxing private schools and these private equity loopholes, getting rid of those in order to get some, some more money uh, to fund certain services. But, um, you know, that... I mean, I don't know how many times they've said they'll use the non-DOM tax status to fund things. <laughs> About 20 different things that relies on the money that that brings in. So, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's tricky because they don't... Their big fear is it being painted as the same old Labour who will put your taxes up, same old Labour who will have a sort of borrowing bombshell when they come in and put debt up. So that's why you see Rachel Reeves saying actually very little... Um, I mean, she's pointing out all of the things, you know, the contradictions. Rishi Sunak wanted to put national insurance up last year or when he was chancellor and now they're, um, now they're cutting it, etc. So she did a good job of those contradictions and also pointing out the problems in the country. She, she asks the Reagan question a lot. Um, you know, do, you feel, do people feel better off now than they did 13 years ago? Are our public services any, working any better now than they were 13 years ago? But the actual prescription for how to change that is severely limited by their own... Um, sort of the political realities that they believe that they're operating in in terms of Labour's vulnerabilities. But also their fiscal rules, I think it was pointed out by someone in the panel, are very similar to, to, to Jeremy Hunt's as well. So they can't really say very much more than that. So it is tricky for them. 
Um, and there's two schools of thoughts, schools of thought really in the Labour Party, which is they get in and then, I think this is what someone in Keir Starmer's office phrased it to me, all bets are off and they'll just do whatever they want, um, which, you know, has kind of democratic difficulties if they're going into the election not promising to do that. Or they're going to have to, you know, have a very honest conversation with the public and disappoint a lot of people. There's actually a fear that, you know, a lot of people in the NHS are waiting for Labour to get in and it, the good times will be here again. Some MPs are saying, you know, we really have to warn these services that it's not going to be like that. So there's, there's two schools of thought and it's, it's difficult to tell what they'll do. But their line is that they will face the reality of the public finances when it, when it comes closer to the time and then make those, those decisions. And they, of course, have, they have their specific commitment on additional spending for net zero in capital spending. Yeah. And so I think that the sense in which one trap is being set is that you know, in spending all of the headroom that Jeremy Hunt has, he's making sure that Rachel Reeves doesn't have some headroom that she can spend on, on various commitments. But, but I agree with Anoush, I think, you know, Labour have, are being very careful to say, you know, we agree with these tax cuts that were announced, um, and therefore, yeah, and as you say, we've got the same fiscal rule, and therefore implicitly they're saying these public spending plans are the ones that we're going to stick to. I don't think whoever wins going, the next election is going to stick to those spending plans. So the real sort of democratic deficit is going to be that we'll be going into, we'll, be, we'll have manifestos that are based, that though this will be the baseline or whatever is the updates in March will be the baseline on which all of those manifesto policies are added onto. But it's not a realistic baseline. So we won't be having that realistic conversation about what the next government actually needs to do. And exactly. we, we will keep talking about what Performance Tracker says about different public services and the fact that politicians need to have that honest conversation. Um, but politically, it's not one that they think it's worth having before the election, at least. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, to put yourself in, Anoush, to put yourself in, in Rachel Reeves' shoes, I mean, she, she can't really, I mean, obviously, I, I'm sure she wants to see a Labour government, she can't be relishing the prospect of... Um, coming into this situation there's only so long that she can sort of say well this is the terrible sort of fiscal situation we've been gifted by the last lot before yeah. as you say then there's a question about you know can Labour win a second term if uh, you know if they can, there's nothing they've got no space to do anything in terms of investing in public services and so on yeah I mean it is a diff it will be a difficult inheritance and probably quite tough for them to turn things around in order to sort of secure that second term but I do think they are relishing it I think they're really fed up with being in opposition they are ruthlessly focused on winning this is why you know this is why they've you know tied themselves into a knot over the Gaza ceasefire question why you know they're saying that they would continue with the two-child cap on benefits they're doing all of these things that actually sort of chip away at Labour's soul or at least some some aspects of the Labour Party um, because they just so badly want to win so I think yes they know it will be a difficult inheritance but I think there is some hope within the party as well that simply the fact of these new faces uh, doing things differently and sort of having more respect for our institutions and things might might have this warm glow effect on the markets I think it's wishful thinking but I think there is some some thought going on like that as well. And one last question for Tom, and then I'm going to come to questions from the floor. So do be uh, ready to ask your questions. Um, Tom, we've heard quite a lot from the government about this, this idea of uh, boosting public sector productivity. Um, what potential do you think there is there? I mean, public sector, pro it would be great. You know, Jeremy Hunt said we want public sector productivity to grow at half a percent a year. It would be great if you could just say it and that happens. Um, the, the, the truth is that you know, public sector productivity is very complicated. And it, you know, if, if you look at the, the headline numbers from, from the ONS, actually it looks like 
on the headline numbers that product productivity improved quite a lot in the 2010 to 2019 period. But actually, lots of the problems you're seeing in the productivity of services now are really the delayed effects of decisions made then, whether that be on holding down pay, which has led now to problems with retention, whether that be to problems around capital budgets that, that Stuart mentioned as well. And I think absolutely that, that there will be things that with sustainable investment, with the right investment choices and you know, good management practices and so on, there will be measures you can take that over time will boost public sector productivity. I think there's a real risk that what should be an attempt to improve public sector productivity sustainably becomes a sort of short-term efficiency drive that gets rid of all the managers, cuts the capital budgets and puts it all into day-to-day -day spending, mm -hmm. that maybe makes things look better today but make things look worse in the future. And so I think it's really important the government looking at public sector productivity is looking for those sustainable long-term policies rather than a quick fix. And just to, to, to pick up on that point you make about sort of cutting managers, mm. this is there's one of the conclusions of a piece of work we did with the, the Health Foundation mm. and Public First looking at the NHS and NHS productivity that found that actually one of the problems is the NHS is chronically undermanaged. Exactly. So you know, it's often a very popular thing to say, you know, get rid of the bureaucrats in the NHS. <laughs> but actually, if you get rid of the bureaucrats, someone's still got to deal with the bureaucracy. And then it becomes the doctors and nurses yeah. doing the paperwork and not being able to uh, do their frontline work rather than, um, rather than having someone who's you know, professionally paid to do that job. Great. OK, we're going to come to questions uh, from the floor. We have a roving mic. If you have a question, uh, please, could you wait for the mic? Uh, tell us your name and where you're from, if you don't mind, um, and uh, I will take two or three at a time. So there's a gentleman here. Thank you. Uh, Dennis Van Micklin, uh, RSA. Uh, just wondering, in a sense, it was very much a hand-to-mouth budget. Uh, it wasn't really much you could expect, was there? Um, but I noticed you've uh, steered clear of one area. It was uh, business, help for business. And uh, there were some nods to the future there. He was doing things like Cambridge, uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, what do you think about those sort of uh, impetuses? He was looking, putting a roadmap in the, for the future in some ways, uh, even though they might not be there in the future. Okay. <laughs> Great. So, gentleman here. Hi, Graham Hunter. Uh, much of the headroom has come from inflation, but what would the net effect be if inflation is lower than forecast? Ollie had a question. Hi, uh, I had a quick question about um, tax cuts and inflation. So in the run-up to the awesome statement, we, uh, sorry, I'm Ollie from the IFG, uh, we kept hearing um, from Hunt that he wouldn't cut taxes because they were inflationary. So a general question to the panel on sort of what they take from the about turn there. And a specific question to Richard, uh, the chancellor said, uh, the measures taken together would lower inflation next year. I didn't really see that in, in the EFO, and I've been trying to sort of square it with uh, your forecast for aggregate uh, demand and supply and the output gap, struggling to make sense of it. So if you could let us know how you got to that, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do you want to start with that one, Richard? Uh, the measures in the, in the order paper have very little impact on inflation at all. I mean, there are some changes to duties... Um, which ha have a direct effect on the headline rate because they, they affect the cost of booze um, and things like that, which people <laughs> purchase and are part of the inflation index. In terms of inflationary pressures as mitigated by how much are people are spending in the economy and what kind of pressure is that putting on economy-wide prices, the effect is very small. 
And uh, as the gentleman pointed out, we haven't said much about the business um, measures. Tom, do you want to take that one? Sure. I mean, I think that the biggest one, certainly if you look at the scorecard, the biggest fiscal cost was the capital expensing decision, that um, the f full expensing, which as I've already said, I think you know, is a very sensible move, um, should be good for business investment in the UK. I mean, that, that is particularly a benefit for large businesses because small businesses are already covered by um, the annual investment allowance. There, there was then, as Jeremy Hunt was keen to point out, his 110 growth measures, that, um, many of which did, did, did affect business, lots of which were not sort of fiscal costs as such, but were, were various announcements. Um, I must confess I haven't yet been through all 110. Um, I, I do think generally that there's quite a lot to, to welcome there. Some of the commitments on, um, on science and manufacturing spending and ha having a plan there, for example, do seem to be um, well-targeted. And it does seem like the you know, this, this isn't a set of measures that is sort of very obviously driven by short-term politics. It does seem to be something that the Chancellor's genuinely passionate about and has tried to introduce a set of measures that, that do largely to, seem to be pretty welcome. I, I would say you, you mentioned the roadmap, and I do think for businesses, actually, as much as having policy on tax and in other areas that is favourable, what's important is having a policy environment that's certain. That's actually one of the things that will contribute to... Um, businesses being more willing to invest is having an environment they can rely on, that they know where it sits in five years, um, which is another reason uh, why having only one fiscal event would, would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, Richard, can I come back to uh, Graham's question about what happens in terms of, of the projections and the, the picture if inflation turns out to be lower than expected? I mean, so it, it, it does depend on, in large part, what the Chancellor decides to do with the path of public spending. Um, in that, uh, in principle, the public finances ought to be sort of broadly inflationary, inflationarily neutral. If you just adjust higher inflation, brings in higher tax revenues, but it also pushes up the real cost of government spending. Um, and so, if, if inflation turns out to be a bit lower, uh, you know, maybe it gets a bit less fiscal drag on the tax side, but maybe that means that he can, you know, that also alleviates some of the real pressure on, on departmental spending plans. It also reduces the cost of, of inflation linked welfare benefits. So, um, a lot of it does de depend on these discretionary policy choices about what you do in particular with, with departmental budgets because they're fixed in cash terms and unless you change them in response to a changing inflation environment, you're just accepting that they're either going up in real terms or going down in real terms compared to what you thought before. Things like benefits adjust automatically to inflation. Um, tax revenue doesn't, um, which worked in the Chancellor's favour at the moment. Um, if inflation turns out to be lower, he'll get less, ta less tax revenue because fewer people will get dragged into higher tax bands. And Anish, you wanted to come in on this question, and it's also one that's coming in online from um, Chris McCown from PA, that um, you know, the, the Chancellor has said a lot about how any sort of tax cut would be um, inflationary, but apparently... Yeah. Um, and I think the person who asked the question is called it an about turn. I think you've seen a lot of this on the language of inflation from the government. Um, it's good to hear from Richard that this, this autumn statement won't have an impact on, on inflation. But it's, it's, I do think the government has, has managed to make it appear as if inflation is in their control by having that pledge to halve inflation by the end of the year. OK, they've met that promise. But they've also, I think, created a rod for their own back because now if inflation goes goes up again or it goes down slower than, than expected, as we've seen in, in the OVR forecast, um, then that's on the government now too. Um, and so they, they have, they've made it as if it's sort of 
within their gift, whereas before it used to be like, oh, you know, because Russia invaded Ukraine and countries around the world like ours are suffering from inflation, and now they've sort of made it as if it's one of their policies that they, they, they have the power to, to bring down. So I think it has been contradictory and confused and potentially politically quite uh, risky. Thank you. Okay, we'll take another set of questions. Um, I've got one online uh, from an anonymous uh, questioner who asks, what are the panel's thoughts on reforms to speed up planning? Um, Incentivising local authorities is great, but they already lack funding. So could penalising them financially for not processing applications quickly enough backfire? Uh, who would like... Oh, well, no, uh, can I take any questions from the room? This one? Hello, Jill Rutter. I work here as well. Um, I, uh, I wanted to ask Richard, if I'm the Chancellor who's sort of basically eaten the packet of marshmallows that you offered him, uh, but might end up be feeling a bit sick by March, what, um, what should he be worrying about as potential risks to the forward that could move the numbers in an unfortunate direction? And uh, if Hannah permits me, uh, there's also a fantastically nice line in paragraph 3.41, uh, where you basically well, say, if only, <laughs> if only the Treasury had talked to other departments, you could have costed the tax-free childcare quite differently in March. Um, and I wonder whether there were other areas where you thought, uh, thought this more general message should be taken on board by our former colleagues in the Treasury. Okay, that is three questions. So, uh, speeding up planning... Um, what and then Jill's questions uh, about Treasury consulting and uh, what other risks should the uh, Chancellor be worrying about after his marshmallows? Richard, I think this is <laughs> you. Um, so on planning, I haven't got very much to say other than we haven't reflected any planning changes in our economic forecasts. I mean, there, there would be things which would improve the environment for investment um, if and when they were to come to pass. A lot depends on the details. Um, there have been lots of planning initiatives um, announced in the past which turn out to not make very many substantive changes to the planning regime in practice. Um, uh, in terms of the risks to the outlook, um, as, as, uh, as Tom was saying, that uh, you know, the Chancellor set, him, set aside £13 billion worth of headroom against his debt falling target in this, uh, in this event. That sounds like a lot of money, um, but you, that's, that's all you need is a 0.1 percentage point difference in our growth forecast to wipe that out. So if growth turns out to grow by just you know, 1.5 rather than 1.6 on average over the next five years, that's gone. If interest rates turn out to be a quarter percentage point higher, um, that is also gone. And you have to bear in mind they've gone from less than one to over 5% um, in the last 18 months. We're also assuming you know, a, a sort of continued uh, recovery in the participation rate of the population post-pandemic, supported by some of the policies announced in this autumn statement. If, in, if instead the trends look more challenging and you know, more and more people either stay out or drop out of the workforce due to long-term sickness and other factors, that, that, you know, that drags down employment and those people stop paying taxes and they start claiming benefits. So that is a particular um, uh, issue fiscally. So any one of those three things heading in the wrong direction between now and March um, could very easily uh, wipe out the, the sort of room for manoeuvre the Chancellor has between, uh, between now and then. Um, on, on the paragraph about consulting other departments, I, I think in, you know, in general, we are very much in, you know, our counterpart is the Treasury for fiscal events. Um, they demand a very high degree of confidentiality around policy measures for those events, and understandably in the case of tax, because 
there can be tax forestalling and um, you know whatever you read in the headlines. Um, they're not always the things that turn end up in the you know, end up in the actual in the actual budget itself. So they demand a very high degree of confidentiality, and sometimes that that extends you know to talk you know to our ability to talk to other departments outside the Treasury. And, but we are generally in favour of being able to talk to the departments who are actually in charge of the policies um, when actually <laughs> trying to understand their implications for both the economy and public finance. Anush, did you want to pick up on that planning question? Because obviously Labour has um, gone quite big in terms of the uh, proposals on that front, and that must be reduced, therefore, something that they think is going to help on the growth side. Yeah, yeah, yeah Labour has gone quite big on planning. Um, I think Keir Starmer said he would just ignore people who didn't want developments in their areas. He really wants to be seen as a YIMBY rather than a NIMBY and they're making that a sort of central plank of their pitch to voters um, in the hope that it will um, sort of turbocharge growth in their words. Um, you've seen from the Conservative side they've, tr they've tried to, to introduce proper planning reform. It's been too difficult. Um, so all you see is these kind of tinkering tweaks around the edge as suggested in the autumn statement um, yesterday. So one of the, one permitted development thing to split, I think, houses into two flats if you want to, as long as you don't change the facade. And then um, uh, this idea that, you know, if, if councils can't speed up their planning application processes, then they will be um, penalised for it. I think on the latter, it's just really um, unrealistic because planning departments and every other department in councils are chronically under-resourced. So unless you put more resource into, into local authorities, you're not going to get them to process things any quicker. Um, uh, already you see shoddy at buildings. So, you know, housing developments that have to be knocked down the moment they're built. I've just been reporting on brand new schools that have been having to be demolished because uh, they just weren't built to standard. Um, that's because you've got, um, you don't have the same rigor in planning and building control departments in councils. Um, uh, than you once did. And so really, if you start penalising councils for not um, processing those, those applications as quickly as the, the deadline um, instructs, then you're going to get basically worse building and less building. Yeah. Tom, did you want to come in on any of Yeah, I mean, on, on the planning point, completely agree with Anush and our, our, our um, performance tracker looks at, at neighbourhood services and sort of spend, spending in various areas. And planning is one of those areas that because it's not a sort of statutory requirement yeah. from government, it has been cut massively. And so just saying you need to do things quicker is going to be really hard for, and given you know, the, those, those forecasts for, for public spending in that unprotected bit includes in theory local government at the same time as adult social care and pressures are taking up a growing share of the budget. You know, planning is one of those areas that has been cut. I think the government's right to recognize that, that slow planning is a problem. And, you know, there are several reasons why um, infrastructure has tended to be more expensive to be built in the UK than elsewhere. And the planning system and how slow that is is no doubt part of it. Uh, the Chancellor was trying to sell this as a bit of a sort of carrot and stick, that if you can do it in time, we'll pay for it. I think the problem is how, how can councils actually set up the infrastructure um, and the, the workforce to be able to process those quickly enough given the upfront spending that would require. And just on the, the budget secrecy point that, that, that Jill was getting at, um, you know, it would clearly be more helpful if, if the Chancellor were willing to tell other departments at least as much about his budget plans as he does to newspapers. Um, <laughs> and, and it's not only a problem that we, you know, we, we, saw, we see a similar problem at, at budget measures, you know, that happens quite a lot. We saw the same problem at the conference as well with the Net, Network North speech. That, was, that document was kept so close that there were several sort of embarrassing errors thrown up in it, you know, pre-announcing things that had already actually happened. 
um, announcing things they didn't actually want to announce. And again, that was a result of not looping in the Department of, for Transport. It's really not sensible to try to be making these announcements in such a secret way that you end up getting the detail wrong. It strikes me there were so many possible policies uh, pre-announced and leaked and discussed ahead of uh, this autumn statement. You could have just thrown in a few of the other things you were going to do, and people would assume that these were just kites that you were flying. Um, just to, I've gotten a question online, um, just which ties in with what you were saying there, Tom, about local authorities. Uh, picks up on uh, what it says. This is another anonymous question um, that says the ABR's report says local authorities have drawn down on reserves for the first time for some years and will draw down 1.5 billion this year and 0.8 billion next year. What does this mean for the financial sustainability of councils? Um, that might be one that you want to pick up on in a minute, um, Stuart. Do I have any more questions um, from the floor? One over here. Thank you. Uh, Gemma Tetlow, also from the Institute for Government. Um, Richard, it's been noticeable in, I think, particularly your last couple of EFOs, you've provided more detail and spelt out more about how you've thought about how measures are affecting the growth of the economy and employment. And um, I'm just wondering, do you, is it harder for you to do that sort of thing for non tax measures for the government, so things like planning reform or other wider changes, is it harder for you to give credit to where those might have an impact, or is it just that we haven't seen announcements on that side yet that would really move the dial? Thank you. And I've got another question um, to Richard. Um, how frequent are forecast changes of this size? Do you think it makes sense for chancellors to respond to these every six months? Oh, this is a good <laughs> IFD question. Uh, is that consistent with their stated aims for fiscal sustainability? Um, Stuart, do you want to kick off with the uh, local council question? Yeah, sure. So uh, reserves, yeah, one of our favourite topics in, <laughs> <laughs> in local government. Um, it's, it's quite a complex picture on reserves. Uh, so actually reserves increased during the pandemic, which maybe seems counterintuitive, but the government provided a lot of extra funding to local authorities. Partly some of that is to do with um, business rates that they're expecting to not, uh, or low business rates over the course of a few years. So they compensate them in advance for that, um, and that was all put into reserve. So there's an element of that. Um, the department, DLUC, has actually been arguing for quite a long time that reserves are too high in local authorities and that uh, local authorities complain about their finances too easily when um, they have so, many, so much money in, in their reserves ready to be spent. Um, we'd probably say that DLUC is probably a bit too uh, bullish on that. I think that, in all honesty, the, the sort of the level of reserves is not the biggest risk to local authority financial sustainability. I think it drawing down reserves is a symptom of a wider problem, and that wider problem is, as Tom mentioned previously, increasing demand for um, both adult and children's social care, uh, but also increasing pressure on other statutory duties like homelessness services, um, and also SEND, special educational needs uh, and disability services. And also, finally, uh, some, some, some authorities are struggling to house asylum seekers as well. So you've had a real increase in these pressures on their statutory duties, at the same time as providing those services becoming more expensive due to inflation, um, and obviously the longer-term trend of declining grant funding from central government. So the drawing down on reserves is more a symptom of struggling to deal with those systemic pressures than it really is about um, you know, the... That, that they are relying on those reserves now to fund all their activity. And it's worth saying, obviously, that reserves are a one-off pot of money that can only be 
used once and a lot of these liabilities are ongoing and require uh, longer term funding uh, arrangements than just a couple of billion here or there from reserves. Yeah, and just on the financial sustainability of councils in general, I mean, we can always see, we can already see that, uh, you know, there's, there's so many councils, I know they can't go bankrupt, but they're effectively going bankrupt around the country already. That's something that we've been looking at quite closely at the New Statesman. We have a tracker, actually, of how many have had to file those those notices. Um, and it just has such a big impact on people's um, relationship with their neighbourhood and their day-to-day life. So that's another sort of impact on the public from... Uh, not if, if they're not going to uh, truly put more money back into local authorities, then, then um, you know, it can cause all sorts of problems. I was in Thurrock where basically a lot of the money was gambled away on um, uh, solar panels on the other side of the country that didn't, it, they didn't get a return on the investment. Council tax has gone up 10% there. It's going to go up 10% again next year, or at least that's what, what's, um, what's predicted. And they're not getting their bins taken out you know they're having their only art space in the town center closed it's really sad the impact of it is is really sad um, i've also been in hastings where they're spending half their budget on temporary accommodation for people who have who have become homeless which means the council's probably going to fall over by by february and have to declare bankruptcy um, and you can see the impact on the town it's um it's it's something that labor really will have to consider what it's going to do about it if it, if it does get into government because they're not going to stop um uh, they're not going to stop filing these these bankruptcy notices thanks richard do you want to take the other two questions uh yeah on, on Gemma's question about it is about how we reflect economic impacts of policies. We have tried in, in recent forecasts to be more transparent about how we take, a, take account of the economic effects of, uh, of policies that government introduces. They've always been implicit in our economic forecasts, but I think you know, because this has become a big part of the debate and also because uh, sort of data and methods have improved, it's allowed, allowed us to be more transparent about the impact um, that measures have on work incentives, on incentives to invest, and we do try and show that much more explicitly in our forecast. What it shows is that in practice, these effects are quite small. Um, you know, the next cut gives the average person 343 extra pounds per year. Um, you know, what, you know, what effect that has on work incentives is pretty marginal. Um, but it, you know, but it, it makes, makes some, amount of, some amount of difference. Um, it is easier to do it with tax and spending changes, partly because the models exist which allow you to do it, and the studies exist which, which, which actually analyze the behavior empirically. It's also easier because um, both the timetable and the intensity of impact is very easy to model and estimate because you know, if you, t- if you change the tax system, you know when it makes a difference. It's gonna happen in January, it's gonna be this amount of money um, and you know what's gonna go into people's pockets. If you're talking about regulatory reform or changes in the way in which public services deliver services, you're never entirely sure when it's gonna get going, how serious people are about it, how hard they're gonna stick at it. Um, and so trying to understand what the transmission mechanism is from, well, we're going to reorganize the health service and that's going to make people healthier and then they'll come out, they'll come out you know, healthier and more productive. You never quite know, how, you know how, what, what the chain of logic really looks like through to somebody spending an extra hour at work or being more productive at work. So it's harder to understand empirically and we tend to not take anything on faith if we can avoid it um, in the OBR, although in some cases the law requires us to take things on faith as, as we discussed. <laughs> Um, I think in terms of uh, frequency of fiscal events, um, we are very unusual at having two a year. Most countries have an annual budget and that's it. Um, There are even, I understand the state of Texas only has a budget once every two years because 
they don't like government and they decide if you just have less of it, if you have it less frequently, <laughs> um, it'll be smaller. Um, and I, I think coming back to, to Tom's point about how in particular, because when chancellors react asymmetrically to good and bad news, you know, they spend 60% of the upside, they only adjust for 25% of the downside. The more events you have for them to do that, basically you get more and more of a ratchet upwards to the debt level. And that's kind of how we've ended up with 100% debt to GDP ratio, because over time, chancellors spend good news, they don't adjust to bad news, and so debt tends to go up more often than it goes down. And that's been a phenomenon here, um, also in other countries, but I think we've, we've got there faster because we do it twice a year. Right, I think I, yes, further grist to the IFG's mill. Um, <laughs> any further questions before I draw to a close? Okay, brilliant. I, well, I think I would like to ask you all to join me in thanking the panel for a really interesting discussion this afternoon. <laughs>